Would you please stand for the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has just been in the wilderness, tempted by the devil, and this is the next move he makes. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's start out with a little uh, biblical interpretation 101. Um, as we approach this passage, one of the cardinal rules of rightly interpreting the Bible, of trying to figure out what it's saying for us, what it's saying to us, is to pay attention not just to the stuff that God says, but also to pay attention to the stuff that God does. And in that, we also learn what things that God is te teaching us about how he has created the world, how he has set it up. For example, we just went through uh, the first chapters of Genesis, and that was on purpose because I wanted to take us to the very beginning of the Bible to show us uh, that, it wasn't, that the beginning of Genesis isn't just some obscure ancient history that has some relevance for, for Jews or world history, but nothing to do with us. It is the foundations of Christian theology. What God says in the first chapters of Genesis is super important, but just as important is what God does the way he creates, the order he sets into place is instruction for us about how we are to order our lives uh, in harmony with the way God created things so that we would honor him with our lives and so that things would go well for us, right? It's not just what God says, it's also what God does that's important. Example, Matthew 20, um, I'm sorry, Luke 24 we pull, maybe you didn't know this, but we pull most of our, a lot of our rationale for how to, how to do Sunday worship out of Luke 24. And it's a story, right? Jesus is, in the story, it's right after the crucifixion, Jesus is walking to this town called Emmaus with a couple of disciples who are downcast, super depressed on life, right? <laughs> and they come to see Jesus, or Jesus shows up, uh, and... Uh, he's walking with them. It's on a Sunday, not a Saturday. He teaches them out of the Bible how the Bible is really not about a bunch of laws, but really about himself and what he's going to do for salvation. And then they get to their house. He blesses, he blesses the bread and wine. And through the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to them. And we pull a lot of our understanding of how to worship God on a Sunday from that. Jesus never says, worship me on a Sunday. Uh, he never says, um, uh, he never says, teach from the Bible about who I am and what I did. He never says, celebrate communion in the power of the Spirit. But that's what he does. 
And by seeing what he does, we see that that's super important. So it's not just what Jesus says that's important, it's what Jesus does that's super important. A couple of caveats in that, right? Like some you know, crazy miracles and extraordinary supernatural miracles that Jesus did that cluster around those big outpourings of revelation from God that are above our pay grade for the most part, right? Sometimes God does crazy stuff, but ordinary stuff that Jesus has promised to attach his power to Sometimes it's what he says, but a lot of times it's what he does that's important. So, are we good? Are you with me? Okay. If we pull, here's the question. If we pull, really, the whole rationale for our worship out of what Jesus does, wouldn't it make sense to pull our, uh, our rationale for doing public ministry from what Jesus does. Does that sound reasonable? I think so. I think it sounds reasonable what Jesus says and what Jesus does in public ministry is important. And that's what I want to focus on in this passage. Jesus has just passed the test as the Son of God and now as he was driven into the wilderness to be tested by the devil really the devil as an instrument of the Father's testing upon him. And he passes that test and remains ultimately and ultra-faithful to the Father above everything else. And now he's thrust immediately into his public ministry. And so the question is really, what can we learn from public, about how to do public ministry by watching what Jesus does? And that's the big takeaway question I want to answer. Uh, how, what do we learn about public ministry from what Jesus does in this passage? But first, before we look at what Jesus does, we have to contrast it and first look at what Jesus doesn't do. And that's super important because it's really set up as the backdrop for what he does do. What does Jesus not do? Jesus does not start his public ministry in Judea and Jerusalem. And there's a good reason for that. So first let's look at Jerusalem, the shining city on the hill. Uh, Why didn't Jesus go to Jerusalem? He was right there. He was right there uh, in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, He was just east of Jerusalem, somewhere past the Jordan River probably. Um, That's where John the Baptist was baptizing. He was right there in the biggest city uh, to, he could have had the biggest impact. Uh, Jerusalem was like the Hollywood or the New York City of Israel. That's where you went to make a big impact, uh, to make your message known, to impact as many people and to intersect with as many different people as possible. You know, everything we're taught about the importance of urban church planning, Jesus like had that opportunity to go straight to the heart of the center of the spiritual universe. But look at what he does. Instead, the very first line says, verse 12, and when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew, that means he cut out, into Galilee. Uh, In the Gospel of John, it kind of fills that out for us, and it says that John was arrested, 
And then the Pharisees learned that Jesus was making and baptizing even more disciples than John was. And so the Pharisees arrested John and then they set their sights on Jesus and it started to get hot and Jesus had to cut out. That's why he left. Now look, we are, we're super conditioned as being totally removed from the culture, right? We're, and, and reading the gospels and, you know, Jesus is the good guy and the Pharisees are the, are the bad guys and we're like super used to that dynamic. But that is just like Brian said when he was reading the law, that is not at all what the, what the people who read this would have thought. Not at all. To them, um, you know, Jerusalem was really the center of the spiritual universe. The Old Testament said so. The Old Testament said that Jerusalem was to act like a magnet for, of, of spirituality for people all across the globe. People were supposed to look at Jerusalem and say, wow, the, this, the, the, the equity and the justice and the righteousness produced by the law and the beauty of the worship uh, and just the beauty of the culture and the people based on their love for God, Yahweh, and his love for them is unlike anything else in the world. Wow, that's so great. We want to learn more about it. That's what Jerusalem was supposed to be, the center of the spiritual universe. And the Pharisees were like, top of the heap in that. They were the guys that everybody respected the most. They were the most loved and honored and respected religious people of the day. They weren't priests. They weren't professional clergy. They were laity who had gone to extreme lengths to learn their Bibles, to know their theology, to to honor God and to love God in everything they did from the biggest things very down to the very smallest things. They went all in to love God and then dedicated their lives to teaching other people about that. Even Look at what Paul says in Romans 2. This is a general understanding or belief about the Pharisees. They were thought to be a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children stellar reputation. And yet Paul goes on from that, those accolades, and he goes, uh, except for the fact that you're all a bunch of money-grubbing prima donna hypocrites. And the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Talk about getting punched in the teeth. Uh, he calls the Pharisees lawless. And that was their whole gig. We keep the law. Jesus all, bam. <laughs> and, and Paul's being nice, right? Compared to what Jesus said about them. Everything that uh, Brian just read from us, from the law, Jesus is calling out, woe to you. That's like a warning of eternal judgment. You think and you feel and everybody, you got everybody believing that you are the man and yet Jesus says, let me, I'm just gonna totally summarize this and give the short list. There's other issues that they have but for our intents and purposes now, um, Jesus said to the people, he said, look, do what the Pharisees tell you to do. It wasn't that their teaching was bad. He was like, go ahead and do what they teach you to do. Just don't do what they do. Uh, they knew the truth, but they couldn't do the truth. Why? 
because they were so wrapped up in perfecting the esoteric boundaries of their theology that they totally missed what the theology was for in the first place. That's why Jesus says, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. They were so fastidious about their purity ritual laws that if a gnat were to drop into their tea, they would hurry up and try to scoop it out before the gnat died so that the gnat wouldn't defile the tea and then make them, un- make them defiled and unclean so that they couldn't participate in the worship services. And yet, while they're doing that, the whole time they're over here like an anaconda, like swallowing a camel of sin, of unrighteousness and immersy and hypocrisy and money, love and greed and jealousy and strife. They're swallowing this camel whole, like That's the picture that Jesus gives of the Pharisees. What happened to them? They got, acknowledge is a tricky thing, man. It's important, but it's tricky. It's hard to manage. It's hard to manage because they got so proud of being right. (laughs) We are right. That's a tempting thing. That idea of being right and being seen as right is something that you can sinfully like lean into to find your identity and feel safe and feel secure and feel loved and better than every other, everybody else. They got so into and so proud of being right, their rightness then just naturally justified this us versus them mentality, a really a us better than them mentality towards other Jews, even other righteous Jews, but especially towards sinners and outsiders. We are up here, we're right, they're down there, God loves us, God hates you. And you wrap that up with the idea that you're like God's specially chosen people, and you get that like mixed up about what that means, and they just kind of they just kind of it folded into themselves. Uh, they just turned into themselves, and it became all about them. And it just became evident. It became evident that their hearts were so dead. It became evident in what they did, what they were really all about, what they really loved. Even though they said all the right things, even though they did all the right things, even though they knew all the right things. From a man overflows from a man's heart, the reality. And what Jesus says was what you really love is you love power, you love prestige, you love being recognized, and you love money. Jesus says they are lovers of money. There's a whole book by a guy named Jerry Boyer called Makers versus Takers that kind of outlines. I mean, we kind of glaze over that, but the Pharisees. Uh, were engaged in like all kinds of shady business practices afforded to them by their religious um, position. But they justified all kind of like shady business deals just to collect money. They were just all about money. They're all wealthy. They're like, they were like senators, right? Who could care less about the constituency that they're supposed to represent 
and they just all they care about is making deals with powerful, you know, defense contractors and whatnot to just make that money. They're just all about it. Let's get that money. That's what the Pharisees were really all about. So really, answer the question, why didn't Jesus go to Jerusalem? Simple answer, because Jerusalem was a vile cesspool of toxic religiosity that would have smashed and stamped out Jesus' mission and his message starting from day one, which is exactly what happened when he did go. I think he lasted about a week. <laughs> about a week. That's crazy. That's crazy. Their spiritual deadness like sparked and showed up in the fact that whenever they got the slightest whiff of spiritual life, the first thing they tried to do was stamp it out like a fire that threatened them. But here's the thing. Here's the question for us, man. How is that even possible? How is it possible? How is it possible that the guys who tried so hard to know their Bibles better than everybody else how is it possible that the guys who had the best theology, who wanted to be holy, the guys who tried the hardest, and the guys who knew their Bibles better than everybody else, how is it even possible that they ended up like that? It's so counterintuitive to us. You know, when I was in seminary, we used to read about, we had to study all these different traditions and we'd point out the flaws in their theology and these big gaping holes and how easy it was for us to see that, but the people in them didn't see it. And I always like brought this thing to mind like, okay, if that's true for them, maybe, what if, what are we blind to? What do we not see? What do we not know? And my reaction was, Nothing, because our theology is so good. I mean, I could slice it and dice it, you know, five ways till Sunday. Uh, you know, exegetically, this is what the Greek and Hebrew says. This is the cultural milieu it was poured into, and this is what it means. We can really have conversations with the dead telling us what this stuff really means, and you go to great lengths to understand that, and so it's so confusing how how could we have any blind spots? Our theology is so good. And I can't tell you how many times, more than I even want to admit, probably more than I could count on my fingers by now, where I've been in a situation with somebody, in a counseling situation, or someone is just discouraged uh, beyond belief. And the scenario is somebody in the church did some, some terrible thing that hurt somebody badly, and they're just, and the person is so confused. They're like, but, but their theology was so good. I heard it a couple weeks ago in our Sunday school class on church hurt. Like real, like confusion. But think about it. What is implied in that question? You're hurt by somebody in the church or some church father does some terrible thing that just embarrasses everybody or you know, something goes down and we're just left so confused because their theology was so good. What does that question imply? It implies that we believe, we believe that 
good theology, if you have good theology, it necessarily equates to spiritual maturity. That's it. For Presbyterians, spiritual growth is reading another book. Prove me wrong. (laughs) Fight me. (laughs) Um, Quick disclaimer before I get brought up on charges at the Presbyterian. (laughs) Good theology is crucially important. (laughs) Is crucially important. Man, you can mess people up with bad theology, and it happens all the time. But here's the thing. Good theology is important. It's an important thing, but we treat it like it's the only thing. That's what we really believe. Am I lying? Am I lying? No. You're going to be a church father and say the most demeaning things about women imaginable in a public venue. But since your theology is good, you get a pass. You can be a church father and a known and outward confederate sympathizer. You can give the invocation prayer to the Daughters of the Confederacy Confederate Memorial Day every year But if your theology's good, you get a pass. You can create the most toxic church environment imaginable. <laughs> uh, you can collect 40 or 50 people together to hate everybody else <laughs> and convince yourself that no one comes because they don't handle the truth and get more and more bitter. But if your theology's good, you get a pass. You can pretty much throw up just about any red flag of spiritual immaturity short of gross public moral failure, everything in the antithesis of the fruit of the spirit, but if your theology's good, brother, you're good. Tell me I'm lying. There was a guy that came to our Bible study five, six, seven years ago. The Bible study that became this church. Guy used to know a Christian who had left the church because he was hurt by the church. What this guy needed more than anything was somebody to like love him and care for him and mentor him and put him back together. And he started coming, started blossoming, started growing, really started getting into it. And one day he came to church and he said, Rob, I am super into this. I totally understand this. I get what the gospel is. I'm just not down with this infant baptism thing. And man, I, I, this is so embarrassing. It was like a dog whistle for me. I was like, what? My ears perked up, you know, and I ran over there. And I literally beat him down. Beat him down with a PhD level argument for infant baptism. Did I win the argument? I sure did. You bet I did. I won it three times at least. Did I ever see him again? No. I didn't. I didn't. See, good good theologies 
it's an important thing, but it's not the only thing. There's something else. And there's something else that's what we see in what Jesus does, right? See, Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem, the shining city on the hill. Jesus goes to Galilee, the trailer park of the nations. <laughs> Galilee uh, was not Hollywood or New York City. It's maybe more like Bakersfield. You go to Bakersfield. Bakersfield is kind of like Galilee vibe, right? Except worse, because Galilee had a bad reputation. Uh, had a bad reputation amongst the Jews because, uh, you know, it's called Galilee of the Nations. Isaiah actually calls it that. 700 years prior to, to, to the time of Jesus, calls it Galilee of the Nations. Uh, and he says that, that God, you know, God brought contempt on them. And what happened was uh, that Gentiles and pagans just moved in and became so overrun with pagans that during the Maccabean revolt about 170 BC, they, they literally had to, that Judea had to go up and evacuate, like the, deliver, like the evacuation of Afghanistan. They had to go up and get the Jews out because all of the Gentiles in Galilee had turned against the Jews and they were in danger. They had to literally get them out because it became so corrupt. Now that was at 170 ID. I don't know how Isaiah happened to know that. In 700 BC, I must have been a lucky guess, but uh, it had a bad reputation. But things were better now. At the time of Jesus, things were better. There were a lot of Jews from Judea had moved back, especially to Capernaum. Capernaum was the most Jewish city in the region. Uh, but it was still a mix of Jewish people and Gentile people and for the most part, they just didn't pay a whole lot of attention to all the shenanigans going on in Jerusalem. Not probably not because they, you know, weren't didn't love God, but it was just so distant. And people were had work to do and fish to catch and life to live. Uh, and in all the mix and the melee, you know, there was just a bunch of people who had burned out on their faith or had just given up on it altogether at least the pharisaical version of it. And they were just in, you know, in the midst of like being pressed in everyday life. And that was what Capernaum was like. And that's where Jesus went. He, let, he went to live in this urban center. It's about 10,000 people, right? He probably rented like a little flat somewhere and like actually lived there in an apartment as he's gathering disciples. Uh, Maybe he had, you know, they had, he had, uh, there were a lot of women who supported him and like, and supported his ministry. He like went to live in this city to begin his ministry, to be in and among all these people on the fringes, the outsiders, the sinners, the people who were burnt out, the people who had given up on God, the people who were just busy with going about their lives pretty much like indoctrinated into a Gentile mindset which of course made it the perfect place for Jesus to go because that's what he is all about. That's the kind of people he's looking for. He's not looking for the rightest of the right. He's looking for the people that actually need him. That's what he looks for. So what was different 
What was different about what Jesus did? First, he went to where the regular people were, and he did ministry there. He went out. He went to them, and he brought his ministry to them. Uh, and it's, you know, if you read it, as shocking as and as like gut-punching as it is to hear how Jesus treated the professional religious elite class, it's equally as shocking how he treated everyday regular sinners and people. I mean, it's crazy. He, you know, like he shows up, you know, the women who are like caught in capital crimes. Is no one here to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. And he tells people, you know, come to me and I'll give you rest for your weary souls because my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light and he is gentle and lowly and compassionate and overflowing with love and true empathy and concern for the people who are struggling under the weight of sin and the terror of the law that's been brought upon them and they're just even their conscious or their unconscious fear of what's going to happen to them. He just gets right into that mix. And he shows people what God is really like. What if we did that? Can you imagine how different the world would view us if we didn't spend like all of our time and money telling everybody what, you know, what we were against, what God hated, what God didn't approve of, how, why, and God's going to destroy America. And instead, we just treated people like Jesus did. We went into where they were, we befriended them, and we let them know that Jesus has this almost unimaginable reservoir of grace and mercy and compassion and peace and love for even the worst of sinners and that he is totally safe. The second thing, he, he taught burned out people what Christianity was really all about. He goes into the Capernaum and the message is what? The message is repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom is at hand. Now we think repent because of all of our pharisaical conditioning. We think, you know, repent of your individual sins, right? Like you're supposed to like show up for your baptism and be like with a list like, okay, in 1972, I kicked Johnny Butler in the face. I stole, uh, you know, Kim... So I, I chased a helmet uh, on his bike and scared him. I, I kicked out the skylights of Ada Harris School. <laughs> I better stop right there, right? As if you could actually come with the whole list, right? Like you would actually be able to remember everything. Come on. It, now, repent does mean that we turn from our sins. We turn from our old way of life. We turn from the things we were trusting in for comfort and satisfaction and salvation. That's what really this means. Jesus is saying repent. It means turn from, change your mind, turn away from what you are trusting in for salvation. How do we know that? Because when they go, when Paul goes to the Greeks in Athens, he calls them to repent from 
polytheism and from their, their belief in their philosophy. He, he, but when he goes to a Jewish audience, he calls them to repent, to turn from a totally different thing. He tells them to repent and to turn away from trying to earn their own way into salvation by keeping the law. And so this is Jesus saying, repent, turn away from this foolish and futile attempt of making yourself righteous and holy before me and instead believe in the gospel. Believe that God has provided your salvation for you. And turning away from sin, of course, it's a part of that, but we don't turn away from our sins and then come to God, you know, like get ourselves ready. You turn to God, and then through the process of knowing him and loving him more, the sins just kind of start to fall off as that eternal life starts to bubble up within us. And he says, he says the kingdom is at hand, which means it really, it says, has drawn near. It means it's close. It is on the verge of breaking into the world. And that's what was happening at that point in time. For thousands of years, the prophets had said, there's coming a day when the power of the Holy Spirit will be unleashed to everyone who believes. And that day was about to happen at the day of Pentecost. So Jesus is saying, look, what the, what the whole Old Testament is promising, that God through is going to give out his spirit uh, and restore everyone who comes to him in faith that kingdom connecting with this world is about to break in. It's about to happen. And for us, that's happened. The kingdom isn't near, it's here. Jesus inaugurated that on the cross. Paid the debt for everything. Uh, ascended into heaven on the day of Pentecost. He poured his spirit out. The kingdom breaking into this world. The spirit coming into us and attaching us in a real way, in a way that's even more real than physical to the age to come through what God has done for us. And so, you know, Jesus was teaching people that Christianity isn't about what you do for God, it's about what God has done for you. And to rest in that and to trust in that, that light burden. And so what's different, what's different about what Jesus did? Not the theology. Uh, probably safe to say that Jesus was a better theologian than the Pharisees. Probably safe to say that Jesus believed in understanding God and knowing God and loving God, but he didn't, he didn't stop at the abstract level. He didn't use all of his knowledge of God uh, as a way to keep God a safe distance from his heart. And neither are we. Or to use that, theology, the Bible, we're not supposed to be faithful to the Bible. The Bible is a tool that allows us to be faithful to Jesus as Jesus really is. And that's supposed to change us. Uh, it's supposed to change us to be more like Jesus. It's supposed to change us so that we want to tell people what God is really like 
to affect our hearts so that we, instead of being suspicious of the outsider and the sinner and others, instead of hating them or thinking that we're above them, that we think we're below them, we are underneath them and we're called to lift them up and to pour ourselves out. That the life coming into us from the Spirit is supposed to then come back out of us into the world. That's the point. And listen, God... He imprinted the very geography of Israel with a, with a symbol of that. There's two bodies of water in Israel. Just east of Capernaum is the Sea of Galilee. It's teeming with life. Why? Because there's an inlet of water. There's fresh water pouring in, and there's fresh water pouring out and going down the Jordan River. Both of those are important, and it's teeming with life. And then there's the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead. <laughs> Nothing's alive in it. It's super salty. It's so salty you like bob around, you can bob in it like a half out of water because it's so salty. Why? Life is being poured into it. No life's going out. It's the same with us. If the Holy Spirit is pumping life into us, and that life is never coming and pouring back out of us into the world, you're going to get dry and you're going to get salty real quick. And you sit in a church that hasn't really had any adult baptisms for five years or more. And you start getting dry, you start getting salty. And you're going to turn to things, what, you know, you're going to turn to other things to like build a sense of life. You're going to like lean into rituals. You're going to lean into your 19th century liturgy and tell yourself that it's, you, you're, you're better than everyone else because of it. Your heart's going to get dry and it's going to get salty, but it's not supposed to be like that. Life in, life out. That's what we're supposed to be doing. See, God is setting us apart for something better. He is setting us apart for the mission. He's setting us apart for the mission of the church. Now remember the intro, right? Uh, It's not just what Jesus says that's important, but it's what Jesus did that's important. So what can we learn about doing public ministry from what Jesus did contrary to what the Pharisees did? That's the big question that we want to answer, right? So I want to play a game. Let's play a little game. Uh, The last two weeks, at least, I've I've gone at length to convince you that the Christian life is a life about the power of the Holy Spirit flowing in and through us, changing us from glory to glory. Uh, Sometimes little baby steps, but making us more into the family image. Uh, Not self, you know, not giving us that spirit, not giving us spiritual power so we can go use it for selfish reasons, Uh, but so that we can be what we were created to be, right? Not the little, not little pen light, with limited battery power, but to be conduits of the power of the Spirit in and through us. We are still fully human, individual people, yet we're 
designed to operate as conduits of God's power flowing into us and out of us. So based on what we've learned, on what Jesus does in public ministry and versus what the Pharisees did in public ministry, we took the liberty of surveying top Christian denominations across the country and we got five answers to the question, Jesus gives us spiritual power so we can fill in the blank. What do you think the answer? What's the right answer? What do you think? I want to ask everybody to like sign on to one of these answers, one or the other, okay? So first, first answer survey says Jesus gives us spiritual power so we can lock ourselves in a room with books. Who's going to go for that one? Anybody? Anybody? No? Are you sure? Come on, be honest. I know not what you, not what you want people to think, but what do you really do? What did you go to school for three and a half years to learn how to do? <laughs> Nobody wants to claim that one. Okay, second survey says reasons. Jesus gives us spiritual power so we can. Survey says get that money. Who wants to get that one? Anybody go for that one? Jesus gives us spiritual power so we can get that money. Anybody? Yeah, God's yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got some honest people in the back. Praise God. Okay, third one. Third one. Jesus gives us spiritual power so we can lord it over the evangelicals. Who wants to go with that one? Amen. Sammy, you're going to go with that? Right on, bro. Amen. Number four. Jesus gives us spiritual power so we can endlessly debate obscure theology. Anybody? Thanks for being honest, bro. Thanks for being honest, bro, you guys. <laughs> Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And number five, top answer is, Jesus gives us spiritual power so we can be living witnesses for Jesus. No. <laughs> no, that's not it. That can't be it. That can't be it. No way. All right. Listen. Listen. You ever wonder why God doesn't just kill you as soon as you get converted? You ever wish he did? You're like, okay, I'm saved. I'm good. I'm going to heaven. Why do I have to stay here? <laughs> Why do I got to keep suffering? God, just kill me. Just take me home. Just save me. I believe in Jesus. Bang! Dead. Heaven in the glory cloud. This is why. He has given us, he has granted us, he has blessed us with a tiny sliver of time with which to be living witnesses for Jesus before we enjoy an, an eternity of joy and fulfillment and peace with him. A sliver of time. Now when I say living witnesses for Jesus, I don't mean bum rush evangelists. I don't mean seven ways, you know, learn, learn five easy ways to create an awkward conversation with a stranger. Uh, 
I don't mean be a sniper, you know, notches in your Bible for how many people you choked out to say the prayer. Say the prayer! <laughs> say the prayer! You know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> I mean living witnesses to the reality of God and the truth of the Christian faith. What is God really like? How has he treated you? It contradiction to what people think God is like. Has God treated you like a harsh judge who just wants to kill your fun? That's what people believe. And we're supposed to be here to say, that's not my experience with God at all. My experience with God was when I fall into the worst kinds of sin. Uh, I am overwhelmed with his compassion and love for me. And his power pulling me away from the things that destroy my life. Um, and I mean to, to live out as public witnesses, publicly versus privately. Not like, well, my Christian faith is my own business and I'm not going to tell anybody at work or not anybody out. You know, but to, to publicly live out our Christian faith. To publicly live out the struggles. You know, the real struggles. And how God's shocking compassion and patience for us defines who he is. Against what way people think that God is. And I mean, being public about our obedience and why we do it, man. Be in the mix with people who aren't Christian and having real friendships with them so that they ask you questions like, why don't you hook up with her? Why don't you go to the club? Why don't you cheat on that? Why did you like not forge that signature? Why don't you, engage? it's just, it's fraud. Yeah, but no one's gonna catch you. Why do you, why not? So we can tell them, look, I'm, you know, I've, I've been, I believe, I've been saved. What Jesus has done for me. I'm super grateful for that. And he asked me to honor him in my life by acting in these certain ways with integrity. And my experience so far has been when I do that, things work out way better. And when I don't, it like bites me in, in the back side. And, uh, <laughs> hypothetically. Um, you know, and that's totally different from telling someone else what they should do. You should do this. You should do that. It's saying, this is what I do, and this is why I do it, and this is the fruit I get out of it. Um, you know, in public about our hope, everybody you know has a sneaking suspicion that this world and the glory of it is never going to satisfy them. Everyone has a sneaking suspicion, especially, you know, by like maybe when you're 20, you know, 20 something, you're like, yes, I'm going to conquer the world. But by the time you're 30, you either didn't conquer the world or you did. And if you didn't, you're frustrated. If you did, you're exasperated because you got what you wanted and it didn't do what you thought it was going to do. Everybody has a gospel, everyone has something they believe will save them. Everyone has an end times philosophy. Uh, what, what that belief is going to get them to, the reward. 
And nobody's gospel and nobody's end time belief comes anywhere close to the beauty of the Christian faith and our understanding of what's going on. That Jesus has given life to anybody who's humble enough to, to, to hold on to it, to take it. And he locks us in and our future is, is, is in, a, in a world that's more, it's, we can't even imagine it. You know, we're, we're called to, to let people know what Christianity really is, what God is really like. So they say to themselves, man, that's, that's really beautiful. I wish it was true. Too bad it's not. And then we can talk to them about why it is. And they're open to it. As God opens their hearts. Right? So, wrapping it up. As I was prepping the sermon and thinking about it, meditating on it, it struck me that I used to be really bummed about the difference between our world and our culture and the first, second century world and culture of the early church. Because we're in a post-Christian uh, world and, and a lot of people want to say, it's, a lot, it's just like the early church and the early church exploded and we can too. And I was like, nah, it's not like that. Because in the early church, they're going into the nations where no one had ever heard of Christianity before. It's completely fresh. But in our world, we're going out into a world where everyone has heard of Christianity, is convinced that it's untenable, false, maybe even harmful. It's been tried, found wanting, and consigned to the dustbin of history. How do you even go out into a world like that, right? But really, that's just another way of saying the way people were in Galilee. They were burned out on religion, or at least the pharisaical version of it. Um, They were burned out, and they had given up on their faith. People have left church, have left the Christian faith, and are, are, people are rejecting a false version of Jesus that isn't even true. That's what's out there. People are denying a version of Christianity that, that we would repudiate as well. And so, what's out there? What if you could show people what God is really like? What if we could tell people what Jesus really did in comparison to how they feel, what they think, what the world's told them? What if we could show people what Christianity was really all about? God promises us that we have the Holy Spirit power to do just that. That's why we're still here. We just need to lean into it and trust that God will do the rest as we do that. And that sounds like a better way to spend our time here than all the foolish stuff I usually do. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Again, it convicts us. Lord, your word says you break bones (laughs) and then you put them back together. That sounds so harsh, but it's true, Lord. You need to break us of our bad ideas and our false beliefs and all the foolish things that we're trusting in to get by and to be satisfied so that you can reset that bone to be better and stronger than it ever was in your truth and in your wisdom. And you have set us apart from this world for the world to come. And in the meantime, you have left us here to be living witnesses to you. 
And we can do that in so many simple ways, just by being publicly Christian and real about our struggles, about our victories, about our hope. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that. Help us to do that, Lord, and we pray that you would bless us to see a thousand people come to faith in your name through our ministry. Help us to be a light and help us to be salt in the city of San Diego. In Jesus' name, amen.